This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains, and the opposite is America. Because America is now one big gay disco. Yes, yes, I am. That's, that's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Don't don't use those kinds of slurs. What? Are there no slurs here? Definitely, our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That's what they. That's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Uh, you'd be jerking off every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of the hands of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period, of time that seemed to be the case hello welcome again to another episode of emj live and winter has returned to south bend indiana but i'm glad i'm back home again in indiana uh, after an episode in montana the wilderness of montana near the canadian border uh we are a little bit late now, but we're going to talk about the Super Bowl uh, as an entree into something else, which is more important, uh, not hard to do because there's hardly anything in the world that is less important than the um, Super Bowl. Um, I don't know whether uh, you knew this, but uh, the Super Bowl was about uh, Jason Kielschi and uh, Taylor Swift. Everything else was a sideshow. I remember uh, a sore Canadian once said that there he was watching a fight when a hockey match broke out. And uh, I remember watching commercials when the Super Bowl broke out. Uh, this is what has happened to uh, professional sports, even tech sports, which are not technically professional, like uh, college NCAA sports. 
I remember watching uh, over the, I, I'm not a regular fan at, by any stretch of the imagination, but over the past 40 some years, simply by being here, I invariably would get Notre Dame football tickets. And I remember the excitement of the game uh, back in, uh, I guess it was the 1980s, uh, being replaced by uh, boredom, uh, not just on my part, uh, but on the part of the students, uh, largely because of a little man, a man who looked like a referee but had red sleeves, and he was basically the uh, agent of the NBC who could stop the game whenever he felt people were getting interested so they could inject a commercial. So professional sports are a form of control. We all knew that. It goes back to uh, the Roman Empire, bread and circuses. That's how they controlled the mob back then, by giving them bread and circuses. Uh, that's what's going on now. I've taken visitors to, to Notre Dame, walked around the campus, and I'm always struck by the stadium as some type of pagan uh, uh, intrusion into what are or normally uh, uh, modest buildings. Uh, it's surrounded by statues of the people who won NCAA titles. Okay, they are the gods of this pagan sport era. Uh, but uh, to get back to um, the Super Bowl, uh, Jason got. $20 million from Pfizer to push vaccines. You can see a picture there of him uh, pointing to the Band-Aid on his arm. I don't know whether he got one. If he's smart, he will not get one because it will probably end his career. He may end up dead on the football field, as so many other athletes who have actually gotten the shot have done. But he doesn't care. Uh, the Super Bowl was held in Las Vegas, and more people bet on it than uh, in any other Super Bowl in history. So this should give you some indication of what's going on here. But th the main thing I want to talk about is they're selling identities. They're selling identity in a land where uh, we have a vacuum, uh, where identity has disappeared. We are all victims of identity theft simply because we are Americans. And the irony here, of course, is that the main uh, vehicle for this theft is known as identity politics which means basically there is no such thing as an American. If you want to be an American, you have to be part of a privileged group. It's sort of like being Swiss. If you want to be Swiss, you have to be a member, a uh, citizen of a canton. Uh, there is no federal government in Switzerland. I'll probably, someone will probably correct me on that. But basically you have to be, uh, way it used to be in America. If you wanted to be an American, you had to be a Virginian or a Pennsylvanian or something like that. That ended with the Civil War. But if you go to Gettysburg, you can still see the monument to that, where this the New York uh, Battalion fought the Virginia Battalion, and so on and so forth. Uh, we now have new criteria for identity, and one of the main uh, is uh, sports apparel and sports teams. So you can wear ethnic clothing, pseudo-ethnic clothing, you can dress up in the jersey of your favorite football player, and you can kind of derive some, some primitive aura uh, like uh, uh, from this uh, uh, sucking away his identity into your identity for an outrageous fee for an overpriced T-shirt. Um, I've become more and more interested in this ever since someone wrote to me and said he knew what it meant to be a Catholic, but he didn't know what it meant to be an American. And ever since that time, I've been trying to figure out what it means to be an American. And one of the people I've discovered 
who made a big impression in this regard on my life was Ernest Hemingway. Now, I am, uh, he was born in 1899. So he's a figure of the 20th century, one of the most important American figures in the 20th century, because he, in a sense, created a template for how you could live as an American. And uh, even 50, 50 years later, I was still affected by that template. So let's say 1923, when he's living the high life, trying to get published, he shows up in Paris. He's married to an American woman. He's young. He's in his, what is he, 23 years old, 24 years old. And they have one child and they're trying to figure out what it's like to be an American in Paris. Uh, 50 years after that, if you, 1973 is when I showed up in Germany. I had a wife. I had a small child. Uh, I was not in a glamorous place like Paris, but I, I aspired to be a writer. And I think I was influenced by Hemingway. Uh, me, of all people, being influenced by Hemingway. Uh, many people were influenced by Hemingway. Uh, there were all sorts of reasons why this should happen, but uh, one of them was um, that between 1910 and 1950, the United States population doubled, but the farm population declined by one-third. By 1950, only one in six Americans had a farm residence. This meant there was a huge shift of population from the farm to the city. And what you had in the, at the farm was a father who taught you how to be a man, largely through work. And work involved certain things, most of which had to do with animals. So it was either raising animals or killing animals, uh, one way or the other. And... Uh, the killing of the animals goes back even farther than the farming to the back to the first settlers here in America. Uh, that's what it was like. And over that period of time, you had the children of those, those farmers moving into the city and suddenly finding that the skills they learned there didn't apply anymore to the city. And this, in a sense, caused a, a, a generational crisis. Uh, the, the, the 20s is called the uh, lost generation. Uh, they usually ascribe this to World War I and the dislocations caused by World War I, but I think it had to do with something deeper than that, which is what I'm talking about here. So what did it mean to be a man? Well, nobody knew. And so what you had was a situation uh, where now everybody is reading. I've talked before about how you can't, um, you can't really enter the world of ideas unless you read because the world of ideas is in books. And I can try and give you uh, the, the elevator speech about a 1200 page book that I wrote, but basically you got to read the book if you want to be serious about the intellectual life, about being engaged with ideas, the ideas that rule the world. And that was the case back then. Because there's it. That was it. Okay. The radio was just getting started uh, when he was in Paris. Uh, there was obviously no television. 
Motion pictures were just getting started when he's in Paris. This is the time up until 1929. There was no sound. It was Charlie Chaplin ruled the ruled Hollywood, and he was great at pantomime. Uh, and this this is you had to read. And this guy was a writer, and he aspired to be a writer because everybody wanted to be a writer. And the more uh, he succeeded, the more he generated this desire that everyone had, including me. I mean, you know, great. I'd like to write something, dash something off, send it to Max Perkins at Scribner's and then go off to the bullfights or whatever it was. But those days were gone by then. Okay. Uh, the world had changed by then. Uh, and, uh, but at this point, this was the most potent identity marker was what you read and what you read, uh, over the course of the 20th century was Hemingway because Hemingway gave you an idea of what it meant to be an American. And if you've read any of his books, you understand what I'm talking about. Hemingway was a, uh, he was raised as an Episcopalian, grew up in Oak Park. His father was a doctor. He was well-to-do, but he was ever forever going off to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, something that he memorialized in his story, Big Two-Hearted River. Uh, the Fox, Big Two-Hearted River is up there. Uh, uh, if you've read it, you know what a powerful story it is. Just starts off to be a, a kind of fishing expedition, like the kind you would read in uh, you know, what What would be Argosy magazine or True magazine, any of those nature, man against nature magazines. And at the end, he says that line, that's that line, fishing in the swamp was a tragic adventure. And suddenly it opens up a whole new dimension to what was pretty much a, a, a fishing story before that time. Uh, I uh, have been to the, the upper peninsula. I've been to the lower peninsula. I'm, I'm right uh, 10 miles from the border. I go skiing there when there's snow up there. I stopped in Petoskey on the way up to the upper peninsula. And there it's a beautiful town. And there's a beautiful bar right there. And right there at the bar, there's the plaque where Hemingway used to stay, stand there and get drunk uh, as a young man. Hemingway uh, received the Nobel Prize in 1954. The main reason I think that he, well, he, the main reason I think he received the Nobel Prize in 1954 is because America was now the new world power. Faulkner had already received the Nobel Prize, but the main reason I think is that the old man in the sea, the old man in the sea came out in 1952 and it didn't just come out. It's, it's a short book. It's, I didn't, what would you call it? A novella? I think that's the term for it. So it's bigger than a short story, but it's not as big as a novel. Uh, and it was Hemingway sort of at his best, this kind of stoic thing about the poor fisherman who catches a big sailfish and then tries to get it to shore. And before he does, the sharks eat it. So there it is. Fishing in the Gulf Stream is also a tragic adventure. And he was the one who did it. And the significant thing about that was it was published by in Life magazine. I don't know how old you are, but when I was growing up, there were two magazines. One was Time, which was for people who didn't know how to think. And there was Life for people who didn't know how to read. And Life magazine put a full cover. Obviously, that's an exaggeration, but uh, it, it, it was specialized in pictures. And there was this picture of Hemingway. I think it was in with his fisherman sweater, the beard, you know, the Papa image. Uh, and the whole story was there. It was incredible. Uh, time, Life magazine at that point, 1952, had five and a half million 
readers. No one had ever had the reach. No writer ever had this reach before this time. Five and a half million people reading your work. I mean, can you imagine what's going on here? Uh, we don't have that anymore. It may never come back. We have 150 million people watching the Super Bowl. So it's indication of how this uh, world has declined over that period of time. He was the top of his heap. Uh, he was he was the man. 1954 wins the Nobel Prize, and then seven years later he puts a shotgun into his mouth and pulls the trigger with his big toe and he kills himself. And we are left to wonder the meaning of that. One of the people who was affected by that was Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer is a later novelist, about 20 some years younger than um, Hemingway, completely under the influence of Hemingway. If you read The Naked and the Dead, it's the war novel that uh, Hemingway never wrote about World War II. Uh, Mailer's a Jew, but at this point in life, if you want to be successful as a Jewish writer, you have to become Hemingway. You have to become the Wasp guy from um, Oak Park. Not that doesn't. That's too limiting. You have to become the American Stoic. The best example of that would be, I guess, Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper played the lead role in the film version of For Whom the Bell Tolls. So this is the type of thing, the, the world that we lived in at this point. And at this point, uh, the medium became the message. Time Magazine, Time and Life were the propaganda ministry of the CIA during the 1950s. There's no question about it. The proof is uh, C.D. Jackson, a man I've mentioned before, the man who put on that show at Buchenwald, the propaganda show that was the, the, that launched the Holocaust narrative in Buchenwald, he's the one who held up the pelvis ashtray. He was uh, simultaneously on the board of uh, getting paid by the CIA and on the board, uh, Harry Luce's right-hand man to Time magazine. So at this point, uh, Time Life took over from the literary profession. Before that, Ernest Hemingway's life was in many ways coterminous with the uh, beginning of mass control of the media. He was launching his career at the same time that Harry Luce, uh, with money from Yale, Bonesman, had launched Time magazine after reading Walter Lippmann's book on propaganda. Uh, this is now, it gotten so big that it now took on a life of its own. And basically, time, uh, uh, time life could create the template now. It, Hemingway created it on his own, but time life took it and ran with it and made it something bigger than Hemingway could have done by himself. This is what it meant to be a man in America. This is when we had an identity this is, if you want a, a cruder version of this, it was the cowboy. Hemingway used to do a lot of hunting in Idaho where he killed himself, Montana, Sun Valley, places like that. He liked to go up into the Rocky Mountains and shoot things, shoot animals. Uh, this was, uh, the cowboy was up there too. This was the beginning of that. And then it rode and it rode and it rode. And I said, if you were a Jew like Norman Mailer and you wanted to make it, you had to become a cowboy. Well, that's what happened. 
And before long, uh, the Jewish cowboy was named Mel Brooks. And Mel Brooks did Blazing Saddles, which was a Jewish satire on the cowboy. And he killed it. He killed that genre. Something similar happened in literature. And so the next Jew to come along was Philip Roth. And in 1969, he brought out a book called uh, Portnoy's Complaint, which was about a Jew masturbating. Uh, far cry from Hemingway, but this was the new era. This was the beginning of the Jewish takeover of literature, which then uh, began the Jewish takeover of our entire culture, which is something we have uh, we are living under today as we speak. You know what I'm talking about. At this point, we had a. You remember I had a conversation with Jason Whitlock. Uh, you remember, if you watched it, the, the expression on Jason Whitlock's face when I started talking about the, the Jewish involvement in the Harlem Renaissance, about Marcus Garvey, about the creation of the NAACP, the light went on. All you have to, he's got an expressive face, unlike my face. Uh, and the light went on. And you could tell this, is, this was what was, he understood what I was saying. We had a meeting in the minds. And immediately the alarm bells went off. Because if you have two Christians a black and a white Christian agreeing that the Jew is the common enemy. Uh, someone is in trouble and all of the alarm bells went off and they all went off. And basically uh, there was a, a bunch of articles. They were all, it was all cut and paste out of the ADL, uh, basically attacking Jason Whitlock. And as I said, uh, someone yanked his chain. Now this is interesting because Jason is a sports commentator and he's commentated, uh, commented on uh the Super Bowl, serious things like that. What happened over this period of time that I didn't get to talk about was that the, the CIA got involved uh, in the late 60s, early 70s uh, to change the paradigm. We have another paradigm now. What was the paradigm that uh, emerged during the mid-60s? Well, at the beginning, it was Martin Luther King, okay, the black uh, civil rights crusader, and he inspired a lot of people. And so you could become a kind of black civil rights crusader. And that grew on its own to being a Black Panther. Remember the Black Panthers? Big Afro, famous picture of uh, Huey Newton sitting there in that rattan chair. He's got a spear in one hand and a gun in the other. And it was on everybody's, every hippie's wall uh, during the 1960s. Uh, at a certain point, uh, we reached uh, a critical point. The critical point was 1968 uh, when the anti-war movement posed a significant threat to the government. At this point, the government got involved and uh, the result was the murder of Robert F. Kennedy because he was going to uh, find out who murdered his brother and no one wanted that to happen. Uh, the murder of Martin Luther King, because the blacks were getting uppity, and the murder of Thomas Merton, uh, who was threatening to lead a Catholic anti-war movement. Uh, they were all murdered uh, by the government. Uh, you can dispute this. Some people say it's a conspiracy theory, but the evidence is overwhelming. And so we needed, at this point, a new paradigm. And so the new paradigm came about in Chicago. First, the FBI get involved in this thing called COINTELPRO, which basically sent an informer 
uh, uh, into the Black Panther headquarters. Black guy, look, either you work with us or we're sending you up for 20 years. So we worked with him. First thing, uh, Bobby, I think his name was, uh, shows up and starts telling the Panthers that they got to buy guns. And so they start buying guns. He's buying guns. They probably got them cheap because the FBI was selling them to him. And then he calls up, he puts barbiturates in their Kool-Aid, calls up the Chicago cops. They come in and they kill everybody. Fred Hampton was the big martyr, but they killed everybody in the room. And terror spread throughout the entire black population in Chicago. I know this because I know a woman knew a woman who was involved with them, and that's what she told me. And then she also told me what happened. What happened? What was the sequel? Well, you can't just destroy one identity without replacing it with another. And so what was the new identity? It was the pimp. Now, the man who did this was the photographer for Life magazine, a black guy whose name was Gordon Parks. He was a famous black photographer. I told you time and life are organs of the propaganda ministry of the CIA. I pressed this issue with his third or fourth or fifth or sixth wife. I forget what her name was. And I said, was he working for the CIA? She said, no, that's ridiculous. Don't be, this is stupid. But she said, there's always a but here. <laughs> but whenever he got back from assignment, the CIA would interrogate him. <laughs> Well, so he's working for the CIA. And what's he come up with? Well, he comes up with a movie called Shaft. And Shaft had people lining up around the block because those black folk in Chicago, they didn't want no more Afro no more. They wanted to be dressed like, uh, you know, like dressed to kill. And Shaft was a guy. He wasn't a pimp. But then we got to the next uh, movie, and that was called Superfly. And Parks didn't do it, but his son did gave it to his son, and this became enormous, enormous in the community. And I remember uh, showing up. I had to go to a gas station in the ghetto because it was Temple University. And there's this big Cadillac Eldorado with fuzzy dice, and this is the guy's tow truck or something like that. We got in the car, drove through the ghetto in this big Cadillac Eldorado because that's what those guys were, were doing at that point. This was the new identity. This is what this government does for you because in order, they can't just rob you of your identity. They have to provide a new identity for you because nature abhors a vacuum. And that's what happened then. And there's lots more I could talk to you about, but I want to, you know, that's a book. And I'm working on that book now. But uh, this is really, if, if Jason, are you, if you're listening, Jason, we should talk about Superfly. Now, we're not allowed to do this because the Jews don't want us to talk. Now, I'm willing to talk. Are you? Do you know this? Do you know what I just said about Superfly? Do you know what I just said about Gordon Parks? Do any of the black people out there know this? I don't think so. I don't think so. That's why God created me to find out this type of stuff and put it together. And I'd love to share it with uh, my black brothers out there, my black Christian brothers. Uh, but if they're too afraid of getting their chain yanked, uh, we'll never, we won't be able to have this discussion. 
that's my rant. Let's hear what you have to say. All right. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. This is uh, Mike Bajakis, Dr. Jones' assistant. Once again, uh, quick rules for those who are new to our whole call-in section. Call-ins are made via our Telegram channel. Link will be in description for those watching on Rumble, Odyssey, and the various other outlets. <clears throat> in Telegram, I will call on those who raise their hands, and later in the stream, we'll read off text questions from the chat. Uh, try to keep questions on subject. Try to keep the one question at a time. Be respectful of time, and do not forget to unmute yourself. Okay, here we go to Telegram, who's first. Let's go with Eric Brandit. Uh, go ahead, Eric. Hi, can you hear me? I can. Great. Uh, did you see the NPR article from a couple of weeks ago reaffirming that abstaining from pornography turns you into an anti-Semite? Yes, I did see that. Yes, that the original, okay. the original claim was made in Rolling Stone. So every Jewish outlet like Rolling Stone and NPR is now uh, promoting masturbation because they know the hidden grammar here, which is Wilhelm Reich's uh, Mass Psychology of Fascism, which uh, he wrote in 1933 and, and proposed the way to destroy Catholic influence in Austria, which is my, by promoting masturbation. It is a crucial part of their plan of cultural destruction. And so it's no coincidence that Rolling Stone and NPR will now come out promoting masturbation. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because we've heard this before in Rolling Stone that it's anti-Semitic to not watch porn, but NPR saying it makes it a mainstream state approved narrative. Could you comment on that? Yeah, they're both Jewish. They're just a Jewish control <laughs> of the narrative. Abor Look, I've said this before. Can I, should I go down the sacraments, the Jewish sacraments? Abortion, sodomy, usury, masturbation. These are Jewish sacraments. This is how they maintain their control over all of us. And they're not, they're not going to give up on it. It's, I have a great review coming out by Sean Norton explaining exactly how this happened in Ireland. Subscribe to Culture Wars magazine and you will get this. This is a great review. I can't, it's, it's too big to summarize, but I'm saying what you're talking about with Rolling Stone is exactly what happened to Ireland during the 1980s. Exactly. Well, I am a subscriber, so I look forward to reading that. Great. But uh, I was disappointed that your name didn't come up in the NPR article. You didn't get any honorable mention. Only David Duke did. I, I have to write to them and complain. Uh, I I demand pr prime time as the number one anti-Semite in America. And if you don't do that, I'm, I'm ready to file a lawsuit. That's well, a I joke. guess you still that's have competition from David Duke. That, that's a joke. Okay. But I mean, I this is, this is a it's wearing off, fellas. The truth is great and it will prevail. And if there's anything false about what I have said so far on this program, point it out to me. If what I said is if what I said is false, point out the error. If what I said is true, why do you strike me? Someone else said that. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Let's go to Kino Mike next. Go ahead, Kino. <clears throat> hey, I, uh, I, I rewatched your, uh, I guess it was a debate with Jared Taylor recently yes uh i guess it was a couple of years ago now did you ever have any follow-up with him or do you have any private communications with him or anything no no after that debate no no no, no follow-up no nothing 
It was it was supposed so it was it, it was supposed to take place live in Zagreb, and then COVID hit and nobody could travel, uh, and so Frody uh, arranged it on online. I, I'm disappointed; it would have been better live, but it is what it is. Um, okay. Any pl any plans for uh, like a follow up with them or? Nah, no, really. I, I think it's pretty clear. We've, we've stated the position. Yeah. I'm saying, you know, a white boy is a Protestant who doesn't go to church anymore. I had a recent, uh, more recent <laughs> debate with uh, Jared Taylor. Not, who am I? Jim Goad. Uh, and I had to come up with a corollary. So in Jim Goad's case, uh, a white boy is a Catholic who doesn't go to church anymore. But that's clearly the story here. We're talking about the evaporation of identity and the, going to this this category of the mind, uh, which is called white, and then imposing this category of the mind on yourself, uh, not understanding that you're you're sabotaging your own identity by doing this. I've said it many times. Okay. Thank you. Sounds like he sounds like he disappeared a little bit there. He, I think you know. he got blown away. I yeah, think that, that's what happened. That's <laughs> so, the wind, and then he would just disappear. He, yeah, he was asking questions with his door open when he was driving. Um, well, thank you, Kino, for the question. Let's go to let's see Maggie W. Uh, go ahead, Maggie. Oh, hi, Doctor Jones. Nice to speak to you. Good to hear from you. Uh, I was just wondering if you had any recommendations for books for little boys as they're growing up. All right. What age? Well, currently six and four, but as I homeschool, I'd like to just, you know, build up my collection whenever I find them. We, uh, all right. I grew up in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was famous for uh, book publish, children's book publishing. Children's book publishing invariably means illustration. And there was a whole group of watercolor painters, the Brandywine Valley Watercolor Association. And part of it was the famous Wyatt, Wyeth family, Andrew Wyeth, N.C. Wyeth, uh, famous people. So there were a lot of books that my wife used when she was a kindergarten teacher uh, in okay. Philadelphia. And that would be exactly the age. And uh, off the top of my head, I don't know what they are. So if you contact me, if you contact me at uh, jones at culturewars.com, I'll ask her yeah. if she remembers what they were, because they were beautiful oh, books. Awesome. There were a lot of beautiful books out there. We're talking about the early 70s, because there was still a residual children's publishing industry in Philadelphia. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. All right. Who do we got next? Let's go for... Was it Gyve Bones? G-Y-V-E Bones. Mr. Bones, go ahead. And don't forget to unmute yourself. Hi there. Thank you for taking this call. You're welcome. Pleasure to talk. Uh, I've just enjoyed and finished uh, reading the Holocaust narrative. Thank you for this work. You're welcome. And uh, in particular, I had a question about uh, chapter 30, the Holocaust narrative destroys the papacy of Benedict the 16th. And you ended this great chapter on uh, a note where you say, we'll never know where Rat whether Ratzinger's heroic resistance to the Holocaust narrative would have saved Germany from this fate, just as we'll never know what might have happened if Ratzinger had solved the German problem, which is currently plaguing the Catholic Church. 
So if you could get in a time machine and go back a uh, couple of weeks before his Regensburg speech and, and were charged with writing that speech for him, how would you, what would message would you have Ratzinger give to the world to write the negligence that you identified in this? Okay. I'm glad you asked that because I have a, a, an answer to that question. I would have said, okay, uh, your holiness, uh, you're going back to Munich. You've got a bigger crowd. You've got twice the crowd that John Paul II had. You've got two million Germans out there. Uh, forget about Regensburg. Let's go to Dachau. It's a suburb of Munich. Everybody knows Dachau has a, a an incandescent meaning. It is numinous because of its association. It is the first concentration camp. It was the longest concentration camp in existence. And the main uh, people who went to Dachau were the Catholics. They were considered uh, public enemy number one uh, by Hitler in the early part of this regime. I was said, so uh, go to Dachau, okay, and give the speech at Dachau. I, maybe you need a prop. Here's a book for you. Hold up Christus in Dachau by Father Lenz, all right? and say, this is the story of Dachau. We are victims of identity theft because the Jews stole our narrative when Elie Wiesel wrote Night. Let's go back to Dachau. Let's go back to this original story. And what you say at this point is, where are the gas chambers? How did people die in Dachau? What really went on in Dachau? Okay, it's not the narrative that you have been told. This is what we have to go back to. There is a, this, we have to go back to the narrative as Father Lentz said, many other people have said it too, but Father Lentz was the, the best example, which is there is, Germany was being punished for the sin of atheism, for godlessness. Suffering has a purpose. The priest who went there suffered for no fault of their own, but to expiate the sin of godlessness. God allowed them to suffer up until a certain point, and then they stopped suffering, and they triumphed over the evil that took place there. We need to go back to that moment, and I'm saying right now that any guilt that you feel can be resolved by going to confession. No matter what the sin you have committed, if you go to confession, Jesus Christ gave the power to that priest to forgive sins. Now, given that, there are certain things that are not sins. There is no collective guilt for Germany, okay? This means there is no collective guilt. We should not be paying reparations payments to the Israelis anymore because all they're doing is using them to create weapons to kill Palestinians. So that's the first step. We got to get rid of that. If you, uh, you're, there is no reason you should feel guilty because your father was in the Wehrmacht, okay? There's no reason to feel guilty about that because your father's sins, I'm sure, may have an effect on you, but they're not your sins, okay? So forget about that. You, If you feel guilty, it's because you did something. And I'm telling you right now, the main thing that you did, you people out there, and this we're talking in the early 2000s, is that you succumb to sexual liberation. That's why you feel guilty. And at this point, he could have said, look, I, I, I dropped the ball. I was in Rome. I turned my back on the Volkswagenbund when they needed me the most. 
I, I kind of got frings away from it. He, we were down at the Second Vatican Council. I shouldn't have thrown out the Ottaviani documents. This was all a big mistake. But whatever mistake you can make, you can be right with God. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to get right with God, and we're going to throw this whole ridiculous narrative overboard. Now, at that point, uh, the Pope would have broken the law in Germany. And at that point, the Germans would have to make a decision like, what do we do, Hans? Hans, what do we do? What sollen wir jetzt machen? Der Papst ist a Gedanken verbrechen. The Pope just committed a thought crime. What are we going to do now? And either way, the church would have won. So either they, they let it slide, in which case they can't prosecute anyone else anymore because he broke the law with impunity, or better still, put the Pope on trial. Put the Pope on trial. See how that works out. At the height of his power, put him on trial. Put him on trial. See where that goes. Now, okay, this is great theater right now in my mind, but he didn't do it. And that's the tragedy of Joseph Ratzinger. He, if, if there's anyone... I met him twice. I, I was an admirer of Joseph Ratzinger. The last time I met him, we, he asked me where I learned German. I told him the town. He, we, we knew the same nun in that town. Okay? But I have to say, I'm a greater friend of the truth. And the truth is, he internalized the commands of his oppressors. And Germany has suffered ever since. And the suffering gets worse day by day in Germany because they were incapable of breaking away from this narrative that is killing, literally driving the Germans into extinction right now. So better late than never. Make me Pope and I'll do it, okay? As a, as a related follow-up, uh, are you familiar with the work that Malachi Martin published called uh, Three Popes and a Cardinal? Yes. Yeah. And in that, he talks about his relationship working for uh, Cardinal Bea, the Jesuit uh, German right. cardinal high, rank, high, high ranking there. He was his personal secretary, I believe, for him. That's right. And, uh, and, and he relates in that an experience of Cardinal Bea, where Bea, during the war, witnessed a truck being loaded up with uh, Jews, Roman Jews. I'm not sure if it was in Vatican Square or if it was in in the ghetto and it moved his heart and uh, maybe catalyzed his uh, imperative to do something in the council to uh, to yeah. reorient the church's you're, relationship with you're, the, you're absolutely right so Jules, Jules Isaac the the Jew came to Pope John the 23rd and said you've got to get rid of this teaching of contempt teaching of contempt okay the I don't know what Ron Colley was thinking at this point, he probably rolled his eyes and then he said, talk to Cardinal Bea. Well, that was the problem. He talked to Cardinal Bea. He was, Cardinal Bea was disposed, as you mentioned, toward this uh, idea of Jewish suffering. And then he turned to Malachi Martin. Right. And then Malachi Martin was the point man who started working for the Jews. He was getting bribes under the table in the form of book advances under pseudonymous books from the AJC and B'nai B'rith. Malachi Martin was a traitor to the Catholic Church. He got involved with Bob Kaiser's wife. 
Uh, he and worse than that, he's try he collaborated with Bob Kaiser's wife to get him declared insane so they could remove him as Time Life's reporter for the Vatican Council. Michael Novak succeeded him. Another uh, let's not get into Michael Novak. Okay. In other words, it was a disaster for the Catholic Church. Um, and those, if you want to know the full story, it's in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. We'll do uh, one or two more here and then we'll jump to the chats. So you guys start typing in your questions. Let's go for uh, Carlos. Go ahead, Carlos. Hello, hello. Can you guys hear me? I can. Dr. Jones, an honor to speak with you. I'm a fan. Thank you. Um, of course. Yeah, my question is, um, well, I studied philosophy in college. And from an intellectual point of view, I find Catholicism very compelling. In fact, I am Catholic, of course. But I don't know. I feel like there's something non-intellectual that I'm missing lately where my, my seal, my... Enthusiasm for Catholicism has been uh, poor. Is there any sort of advice you could give me as to how I can recover that? Because intellectually, it all makes sense, but I feel like I'm missing something. Breathe Logos Rising. Have you read Logos Rising? I have not. No, well, you should read it because of your philosophical background. This is the history of philosophy you never got in college. This is, explains why we all feel so depressed Okay, because the intellectual ground has been cut out from underneath us. It's a long, involved story. Uh, I, I begin with the beginning of philosophy, and I'm trying to resurrect the tradition of Logos in the Catholic Church. It has suffered. It has suffered. Okay, the, the, the latest episode is the revival of Thomism, which was a good thing. Uh, and the attack on the revived Thomism uh, at the Second Vatican Council uh, Notre Dame's capitulation to the forces outside of the church. We uh, we lost our metaphysical foundation as Catholics because we lost Thomism. Now, there are problems with Thomism, too. You can't have uh, an ahistorical philosophy with a religion that is based on history. There was some work that had to be done. But instead of that, the revolutionaries, the bootlickers, the sycophants, the people with inferiority complexes like Father Hesburgh of Notre Dame capitulated to the money and they strangled Logos in America in its cradle. Read Logos Rising and then get back to me and we'll talk further. Perfect. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, thank you, Carlos. Let's do one more here and we'll jump to the chat. Uh, Alejandro... Go ahead, Alejandro. Hello, Dr. Jones. Hello. How are you, sir? Good. Such an honor. Uh, just regarding uh, sports as a form of control, here in Mexico, we have a saying uh, which we, don't, we do not talk about religion, politics, and soccer. And when reading Baron Metal, specifically the chapter on Milton Friedman economics, uh, well, I kind of link in my mind the creation of the CIA in 53 with C.D. Jackson and everything with uh, the rising of big television in Mexico and in uh, the industrial rise as well. And it turns out that when the privatization of uh, 
the oil and the industry, uh, every single uh, law in Congress was passed alongside with big matches of soccer. So most of the uh, the laws uh, that you mean, have you mean so, so nobody funds, so nobody everyone was distracted from the laws by soccer games. Indeed, yes, yeah. it's it's not a coincidence, of course, uh, of course, because we know that Ashkenazi. No, Jews it's not. It's not TV coincidence. In, and well, uh, this is a disaster that has happened in Mexico, and I'm sure everywhere in the, in the world. And yeah. when I have the fortune to read uh, many of your books, and uh, I want to say, God bless you, sir. Thank you. And that's Thank you. My comment. This 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 reminds me of uh, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell lived a long time, almost a hundred years, from the great transition from Victorian England to the to the mess it is today. And he said the biggest change in his lifetime was that the, when he was a young man, the working classes read poetry. And now all they do is watch soccer matches. That's Bertrand Russell. I'm not a big fan of Bertrand Russell, but I think he was telling the truth there. That is the story of what I just said today. Okay, there was a time when in order to be this macho man, uh, Ernest Hemingway, you had to read a book. You had to read his book. And even Time Magazine or Life Magazine is reading. And now all you do is watch Jason and Taylor on the Super Bowl. This is, uh, it's been a disaster for uh, the mind, uh, the American mind, both the South American, the Central American, and the North American mind. So it's a, it's a worldwide disaster. Uh, and thank you for bringing it up. Thank you for reminding us all. Thank you, Dr. Jones. God bless You're you. welcome. Thank you. Okay, time to jump to Cozy here and the other platforms and start asking some questions. Where are we? Okay, it's from uh, Ferndan Ag93. Question, Dr. Jones, uh, is it true that you said that uh, Pope uh, Benedict XVI apostatized? If it is true, uh, why would you say that? I didn't say it. I don't know who said that, but I didn't say that. Never said that. I think he threw in the towel to use a metaphor from boxing. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, uh, if you read, as as our previous commentator said, if you read the Holocaust narrative, you'll uh, read my interpretation of why he quit. I never said he apostatized, never. Okay, uh, from Avery Watts, kind of a monsters of uh, from the id question here. I just read Dracula, doesn't seem to be only about syphilis. Uh, vampires manifest as uh, mist, floating specks, rats, bats, and wolves. Is it possible it's also about bubonic plague, cholera, and rabies? I don't think so, because uh, there's no guilt involved in spreading the bubonic plague, uh, where I think that the, 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 the thing that haunts Dracula is the guilt that uh, is involved in giving your wife syphilis because you slept with a whore or you slept with some other woman who had syphilis, that woman is a completely innocent victim, and she's going to suffer this horrible venereal disease for which there was no clue. That created enormous guilt in the men who, who did it. There are stories like, you know, in the newspaper about that type of thing. It created enormous guilt in a way that the, the plague uh, would not. And that's why Jonathan Harker can't talk about it. That's why he needs a monster. That's why he needs Dracula. So the great blind in Dracula is based, he says to Minna, here is my diary. Do not read it. 
That's a contradictory compulsion. Like it's so bad, I can't talk about it, but it's so bad, I can't not talk about it either. Uh, that that that's that's what's that's what's going on here, and that's why I think it's it's significant in terms of syphilis. Now, by the time you, know, you get the interview with a vampire, that uh, story with uh, the movie with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, two heartthrobs who are kind of eyeing each other, it's about homosexuality. It can It's a multivalent symbol. Uh, and it can apply equally to homosexuality because homosexuality is this kind of restless kind of, what should I say, sucking, sucking uh, the, 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 you're suffering from uh, father deprivation. You have this depleted sense of masculinity. You think you can suck it off another man and it becomes compulsive. I mean, it also applies to homosexuality. That's what those movies were about. Uh, but uh, because it has to involve some type of guilt. Otherwise, it doesn't work. I mean, as a symbol. Okay, I have a question on Telegram. It's kind of long and drawn out, but roughly this person is asking whatever happened to uh, the Bishop Strickland uh, statement about you. Where did, that, where did that ever go to? I don't know. I mean, he made the statement. I responded to it last week. We posted it on my website. I talked to Patrick Coffin. Um, or corresponded with him. Uh, he put it up there. Um, my initial reaction was that he was the one behind it. I don't think that anymore. Having talked to him, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to have me on. <laughs> he doesn't want to. He wants this thing to to, to disappear. Um, uh, so you know, um, the next step, logical step, would have been for Patrick to have me on, and if I would have gotten on there with Bishop uh, Strickland, I would have said, okay, can you define anti-Semitism? And he couldn't, of course, that would have left him dumbfounded. And so I would have defined it for him. Uh, and if, if he didn't agree with it, he'd have to come up with a better definition. It's biological determinism. That's the only meaning it can have for a Catholic. Uh, what we're now seeing is this disedifying situation where you have I don't know, a bishop, I can't believe this. A bishop uh, basically taking the, the ADL line, which is basically anti-Semitism is anything Jews don't like, and then attacking a fellow Catholic. <laughs> this is this is too, it's, it's sad. It's sad. And he thinks he's being virtuous by doing this. So I, I'd still like to have the, uh, the debate with uh, Bishop Strickland, or the, let's say the discussion. Because your your excellency, you're, you're out of your depth. It was clear from the way you read that that statement. I don't know who wrote it for you, but you should have read it beforehand and learned how to pronounce certain words that you were mispronouncing. And if you're mispronouncing the words, it, it goes even farther to you don't understand the concepts involved. And invoking Janet Smith, I mean, this is ridiculous. If there were ever a situation where the blind are leading the blind, it's Janet Smith as your philosophical advisor. Doesn't understand categories. Sorry, Janet, I know how much you like my wife's cooking, but you can't understand the fact that the Jews and all Jews are two different categories. You've never figured that out. Sorry, Janet, okay? So this is where I'd like to take it. I don't think it's going to be pursued. So it's going to be like hit and run. Bishop William, uh, Bishop Strickland uh, runs me over, uh, keeps on driving, and then pretends that it never happened. 
This is not the way to run the Catholic Church. And to be honest with you, if he acts this way, I can understand why the bishops, the fellow bishops in the Vatican removed him. This is not, this behavior does not bespeak the dignity of a bishop. Sorry. All right. Uh, from uh, SS Tiger SS, uh, was the term master race used by Hitler in his speeches? And doesn't the Talmud declare the Jews the master race? Master race. Yes, the term master race. No, English. master race is, a, is an English term. Uh, Hitler, you know, I look, I've said before, in order to be white, you have to have black people around. There are no black people in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. The, the French sent a bunch of black troops into the Ruhr and scandalized everybody, uh, troops from Africa, but there were no black troops there. So where did he get this crazy racial theory? He got it from America. Madison Grant, the great racial theorist who lived in America, uh, was the, the, the source of his racial thinking. It didn't come from Germany at all. It didn't have any application to Germany. It, it, when he started using the term, nobody knew how to spell it. There were, there were words, it appeared in German text as R-A-C-E. No German knows how to pronounce that word. There's no such thing as a C in the middle of a word like that. The C followed by an E means you to pronounce the A long. They don't have any of this in German. And so they finally came up with their a version called Rasse, R-A-S-S-E. Uh, and that's what they tried to, to run in Germany. And it got them nowhere, nowhere. It only got Hitler in trouble with people he shouldn't have antagonized, namely the Catholic Church and Catholic bishops. So that's that's where it came from. Uh, that's master race. Herrenvolk is the, is the German term, but it's, you know, I'm telling you the sources. It's, it's an English, it's an American import. Colin the Crusader asks, has EMJ ever seen Dignif AI? It's the AI that makes scantily clad women look more modest and makes them ferocious. Basically, it's it's AI that puts clothes on naked women. <laughs> and it's, 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 I've seen it, I, and I believe the New York Times had an article about it, basically saying, like, how dare you? Actually, I've seen one that takes tattoos off. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and they all look better without tattoos. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> so ladies, don't get tattoos. They don't make you look any better. And they're hard to take off unless you're a, a virtual figure and they have this uh, program that will erase them for you. Okay. Um, from a user on Cozy, uh, why has the left transitioned from an economic grievance with Marx to complete uh, bourgeoisie support? Uh, sex. That's what happened. The new left is sexual. The, the first, the original left, if you're talking about Marxism, had to do with economics. Uh, control of the economy, the means of production was the goal of the communist revolution. And over a period of time, uh, a group of people, neo-Marxist, arose and said, no, it's, it's never going to work. Uh, we have a better program. So Gramsci the uh, Italian Marxists said, uh, well, let's take over the culture uh, instead. And that has proved very potent, okay? The main de devotee of Gramsci in America was Joe Buttigieg, who was Pete Buttigieg's father. 
He was at Notre Dame. He didn't do shit when it came to scholarship uh, in terms of writing anything. He had one uh, pale book, uh, a warmed over doctoral dissertation on James Joyce, but he promoted Gramsci's diaries. And uh, not only did he promote them, he used them to, to help take over Notre Dame uh, and create the, the, the son who is now Secretary of Transportation. Uh, there's a story to be written there uh, as well. So uh, the other figure would be uh, Michel Foucault, who was a homosexual, uh, who uh, went to Berkeley and basically decided uh, that uh, sex was the best way. Uh, did I leave out? I, I think I left out Wilhelm Reich. He's another crucial figure here because he said, you know, he was a communist and uh, a Jew, a communist and a psychoanalyst in Vienna in the 1930s. And he said, whenever he wanted to talk about the third thesis of the fourth international, everyone's eyes glazed over and they walked away. But he said, if ever, whenever I talk about sex, I get a big audience. And so sex became the mobilizing device. And I've already said about the uh, mass promotion of masturbation they became the way to overthrow the Catholic Church in Austria, which was the main force for conservatism. And it remains that way to this day. So that's the change was the sexualization of the revolution, which took place in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, six o'clock, Doc. Want to do one more? Two one more? more question. One more? Okay. Um, from Dan M. on Telegram. Uh, do you think that the Biden-Blinken uh, administration, I guess, will allow the mass murder of all 1.9 million Palestinians by starvation and war? Will the American administration allow this? I think it's a distinct possibility because they are so weak. First of all, Biden is not in control of anything, not even his own mind. And secondly, Blinken's uh, a Jew uh, and he can't enforce the the order here, previous order, which is basically some American who's not a Jew uh, says to whoever the Jew is who is in, in charge of Israel, uh, as of today, no more bombs, no more money, no more anything. All of the presidents did that up until the time of uh, Joe Biden. And, uh, well, I don't think Donald Trump did it, okay? But, I mean, uh, the threat was there, at least with Donald Trump. Now it's completely gone because you have 457 Jews running the Biden administration. So it's a distinct possibility. I hope it doesn't happen. All right, well, there you have it. Uh, thanks again. Uh, this has been EMJ Live. This is every Friday at 5. If you're not already, uh, subscribe to Culture Wars Magazine at culturewars.com. A lot of great articles coming out this month. For all of Dr. Jones' books, you can only find them at fidelitypress.org. Subscribe to the Telegram, the Cozy, the Rumble, the Gab, the Bit Shoot, all that stuff. I don't have any announcements. Dr. George, uh, Jones, final words. Yeah, I think the discussion is reaching a higher level because you're starting to read. This is the whole point of this. We can't get, we have to get back to that, that level of discourse. And then we'll start to, we'll start to roll. I guarantee you. Do people when you know what you when you know what you're talking about they run and hide believe me peace see you all next week god bless